Good morning, contact family. Uh, if you don't notice, I'm here in Ron's office. I'm borrowing it for the day as I get some recordings done. Uh, the, the OU stuff in here is bugging me a little bit. If you don't know, my wife's uh, PhD came from Oklahoma State, so my, my body's burning in this chair a little bit. Uh, but it's going to be a great day. We're going to continue our study in 8th Century Prophets. And we've finished with Amos, we finished with Hosea. Of course, there's tons more we could have said uh, in both of those books. Uh, but today we're going to go ahead and start our next section, which is the book of Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah is a very long book, uh, 66 chapters. And we could be in Isaiah if we wanted to for the next, I don't know, year, year and a half longer. But we're going to knock it out in three weeks, so obviously we're going to miss some stuff. Before we get going, of course, we want to reflect on our goals. Remember, we want to get a basic understanding of justice, righteousness, and the 8th century prophets. We want to identify how those relate to Jesus' day, the gospel, and to our current world. We want to discover ways we, personally, and as contact, need to shape our lives to submit to God's way. And we want to intentionally step out of our comfort zones to engage others with righteousness and justice. Those are our big things. Remember, we want to start in our head and move to our actions. So as we do that, we're looking at the book of, again, Isaiah. Let me read you the first verse of Isaiah. It says, These are the visions that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He saw these visions during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. So if you remember our chart that we've looked at a few times, you can see Isaiah there in the green, the very bottom prophet one, which is the blue with the green stripe in the middle. And you can see his prophesying time going across four of the kings on that chart. You also notice that uh, he's green like Judah, so all the Judah prophets are green. He's actually from Judah, and so he's prophesying to Judah. And in the time when he's prophesying, Israel gets taken into captivity. A little bit more about Isaiah. Isaiah means the Lord saves. It's very similar in Hebrew to the names Joshua or Jesus. If you didn't know, and here's a little side fact, uh, there's actually no J sound in either Greek or Hebrew. So in Greek, uh, Jesus is Iesu. Uh, it's more of an I sound. And in Hebrew, Joshua is Yeshua. So Yeshua and Yesiah have similar roots uh, and similar meanings. Means the Lord saves. Isaiah prophesied for about 50 years. His prophecy was directed at Judah as opposed to the last two, Isaiah, uh, Hosea and Amos, who were both prophesying to Israel, the northern kingdom. He was possibly a priest, possibly a member of the royal family. Uh, Amos is the brother of Amaziah. According to Jewish tradition, Amaziah is one of the kings, so he may have been part of the royal family. And then possibly, again, based on an apocryphal work um, that we don't put a lot of stock into, but maybe as good information as anything, called the martyrdom of Isaiah. He might have been killed by Manasseh, which was one of the further down kings of Israel, but that wasn't written until the 1st or 2nd century AD in the time or after the time of Jesus. So did they know better? I don't know. We're going to look through a lot of the text today. Uh, we're going to be going through the first six chapters. We're going to do a pretty good amount of reading because we want to get a good framework of what's going on. We're going to be looking at... Uh, what we're going to call Jerusalem sin, punishment, and restoration. Where Jerusalem was, where Jerusalem did, went wrong, where God needed to punish them, and then how God wanted to restore them. So we're going to be looking at all this, and I want you to just kind of be watching for some of the same things that we've been seeing. See if any of the verses sound similar to you as verses we've seen in Hosea and in Amos. 
there's anything that, that God is continuing to call people to over and over and over again. So with that, let's begin our reading. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner and a donkey recognizes its master. But Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. Oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They are evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why do you continue to invite punishment? Must you rebel forever? Your head is injured and your heart is sick. You are battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds without any soothing ointments or bandages. Your country lies in ruins and your towns are burned. Foreigners plunder your fields before your eyes and destroy everything they see. Beautiful Jerusalem stands abandoned like a watchman's shelter in a vineyard, like a lean-to in a cucumber field after the harvest, like a helpless city under siege. If the Lord of Heaven's armies had not spared a few of us, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. So after this first set of verses, God is really asking them a question, and it's why do you continue to invite punishment on yourself? Why do you keep rebelling against me? Why do you keep doing things you know that are wrong, things I have told you over and over and over again? Because as you bring those things upon yourself, as you do what's wrong, punishment naturally flows from those things, and it's destroying you, it's destroying your families, it's destroying your country. So why do you keep going? Let's continue reading verses 10 through 15. And this one is going to be one where you're very much, if you listen, going to hear something we've, we've heard before in the last few weeks. Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom, verse 10. Listen to the law of our God, people of Gomorrah. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Is that sounding familiar? Is that sounding like what we've heard in, we said, what do you hear in Hosea? Remember when Hosea 6.6, 6, I remember verse last week. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want you to know me, not offer burnt offerings. Or when we were in it, in Amos chapter 5, he said, I hate all of your, your worship. All of it's disgusting to me. It's a stench in my nostrils. Instead, let there be a flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. So what's God saying here again? There is blood on your hands. The choices you are making are hurting and destroying other people. And so the things that you're doing in worship, the ways that you are praising, is false, is meaningless, is not really what I want is not what I'm asking for. So we're asking this question, does this sound familiar? And as we ask it, let's not just stick with our 8th century prophets. Let's look at what Jesus has said about this. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 28. This is part of a uh, passage called the seven woes, 
We're only going to look at three of those things. As Jesus says, and he's talking to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Does Jesus care about justice? Yeah. He's talking about it to the religious leaders. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. You're, you're missing the point. You should have done what you were doing. The praise is something that's important, but it's got to have both parts. Woe to you, teachers of the law, verse 25, and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. What's he talking about? It's about the heart. It's about what's going on in your heart, the condition of your inside, which is going to show the actions of your outside. Verse 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Man, Jesus wasn't pulling any punches, was he? So we go to all this and we say there's this horrible things happening. There's this injustice happening that the, the leaders of Jerusalem were doing, that the leaders of Israel had been doing, that the leaders in uh, Jesus' time, the Pharisees, were doing, that the leaders in our time today are doing, right? Because we know that it's not a world of justice. We know that there's all kinds of things happening where people are abusing, using power, or making money on the backs of the poor, or are finding new ways to enslave and hurt others and do things that are horrible. So what can be done to change? What can be done to change is the question that we ask. And we continue reading. Isaiah 116 says, Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. This is our memory verse a few weeks ago. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Let me read that again. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. If only you will obey me. If you will only obey me, you will have plenty to eat. But if you turn away and refuse to listen, you will be devoured by the sword of your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. What's God want? What's God want? He wants obedience. He wants justice. He wants us to fight for the rights of those who are being hurt. Something that's very dear to God. And God wants to turn the evil that we've been doing into good. God wants to take the wickedness in us and transform who we are so that we can do what is right. God wants to take away our sin it says even here, it's scarlet, and make it white as snow. So the question then is, why is injustice hurtful to God? We're not doing this to God, right? Well, this week we're not going to talk about it. One of these weeks we're going to talk about the greatest command, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What you do to others, you do to me, says Jesus. And so we know that God cares deeply. And God talks about over and over again these vulnerable people widows, orphans, the poor, the immigrants, that God says over and over again, you need to work to bless them. You need to work on behalf of those who are in need. 
And so it's hurtful to God because these are God's people who God loves, who God created. To read one more section in chapter one, uh, and we'll go right into chapter two as we're reading through this. We're going to skip a couple of verses. Uh, but this is a section that's kind of talking about the the old version of Jerusalem. That's what's happening right at this time in the 8th century. And this future idea of when the new Jerusalem comes. And this is an idea that's carried on, not just in the Old Testament, but into the New Testament, all the way into the book of Revelation. This idea of the new city that God brings that's going to do things in a different way. So, let's read from... Uh, chapter 1 and then into chapter 2. This is starting in verse 21. See how Jerusalem, once so faithful, has become a prostitute. Once the home of justice and righteousness, she is now filled with murderers. Once like pure silver, you have become like worthless slag. Once so pure, you are now like watered down wine. Your leaders are rebels, the companions of thieves. All of them love bribes and demand payoffs, but they refuse to defend the cause of orphans or fight for the rights of widows. Okay, so once again, God is talking a big time about these groups that we need to protect. And so the next thing we're going to ask is, what does God want from his kingdom? What does God want his kingdom to look like? And by the way, uh, slag is when you heat metal. It's the part that comes on top that's impure. And so you've got to, well, he's going to talk about it in a second, so I don't want to spoil too much. So let's keep reading, starting in verse 24. It says, Therefore the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, the mighty one of Israel, says, I will take revenge on my enemies and pay back my foes. I will raise my fist against you. I will melt you down and skim off your slag. I will remove all your impurities. Then I will give you good judges again and wise counselors like you used to have. Then Jerusalem will again be called the home of justice and the faithful city. Zion will be restored by justice. Those who repent will be revived by righteousness. Is justice and righteousness a big deal for God? You better believe it. Chapter 2, verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. It's one of the most beautiful passages, and it's going to get even more beautiful uh, next week. We're going to look at some other things that are, that are reflective of this. What's this vision that God has to take the city that was founded at this point on unrighteousness, that all the things they were doing were hurting the people that needed to be blessed, were hurting the people that God loved, were hurting the people that God took care of. And this all ties back to this idea in an Exodus story where, where God's people are slaves in Egypt and God sent Moses to go and to take them out and to bring them out and make them a people. And so they were to remember the way that they were. They were slaves. They were the oppressed. They were the immigrants. They were the widows and orphans. And now as they come into their land and as they have this kingdom, they are not to become like Pharaoh and like the Egyptians and to push down people and to work on their backs and to do these evil things, but are instead to focus very carefully on raising up those who are hurting, on providing and taking care of those who needed extra help 
and needed extra blessing. This is the message that God is sharing here. And God says one day there's going to come a day when this city will go from what it is right now, where it's a city of oppression, to where it's going to be a city of justice and righteousness. And God will be blessing all of the world through this city. And people from all over will come to this new Jerusalem and will come and be blessed and will recognize that there's no longer a need for war. There's no longer a need for violence. All the weapons that were used to hurt each other are turned into tools of taking care of the land and of making things grow and of harvesting and doing all these things that the Garden of Eden and God's original way to be with humans was about. It's this vision of where everyone is taken care of, where the land flourishes, where God gets to achieve the purpose that God created us for in the very beginning. When we were to be at peace with God, following his way, understanding his definition of right and wrong, and doing what we were made for. So how will God accomplish his purpose? Because he talks about what's going to happen. He doesn't really say how he's going to do it. He says, I will do it. But, but how is he going to do it? And that's going to lead us into this last section, which is chapter 6, where we skipped over some of the text, but we're going to jump forward to chapter 6, which is the call of Isaiah. So we're going to read all of chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Yes, go and say to this people, Listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people, plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn to me for healing. Then I said, Lord, how long will this go on? And he replied, until the towns are empty, their houses are deserted, and the whole country is a wasteland. Until the Lord has sent everyone away, and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth, a remnant, survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But, as a terebinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. Remember that, holy seed. I've got a question for you. You heard some of that language. So the, first of all, we've got just this incredible scene of Isaiah in the temple, and God is there Isaiah sees his feet, and he sees these winged seraphim that have six wings, covering their eyes, flying, and then covering their feet. And, and this terrifying and, and exhilarating scene of God 
And Isaiah realizes that he is unclean, he is unholy, that, that no matter how good he might be, he's not good enough. But God makes him holy. One of the seraphim brings a coal to burn his lips and says, I've made you clean. And now you're prepared to go and speak for me. And Isaiah says, yes, I'll go. And then God says this bizarre thing, right? And it sounds weird. Or God's saying, uh, tell the people to listen but don't understand. To look but don't learn anything. Make their hearts hard. Plug their ears, shut their eyes so they won't see or hear, or understand, and so they won't be healed. So what's God saying there? Is God judging Israel for something he made impossible to accomplish? That's a tough question. God's standard is very high, right? And this is a challenge. Is God saying he doesn't want the people to hear? I'd say there's a lot of sarcasm in this, that, that God is saying, don't don't listen. Have you ever heard that reverse psychology? Don't don't go do this when you really want someone to do something. And there's a little bit of that in there that it's if God's saying, if only you would listen. But he's saying, well, don't listen or else you'll find out what you need to do. Don't understand or else you'll realize that I want to heal you and I want to to bring blessing to you. So I'd say he's not judging them for something impossible to accomplish. He's recognizing the way that people are, the way that we are, and that we are so quick to run off the wrong way and to do the wrong thing. And in fact, Jesus talks about this too. And I want to look at in Mark chapter 4, this, this verse, that verses 9 and 10 show up in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to look at in Mark where they show up. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all pair up tied with the parable of the sower. Which remember is where the sower scatters seeds. Some seed just disappears on the rocks and gets eaten by the birds. Some gets choked up or doesn't grow because the soil's not deep enough. Some gets choked up by the weeds and some of it becomes flourishing. And then after this, Jesus says, Mark chapter four, verse nine, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others asked around him asked about this parable. He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, that translation is a little different. It comes from the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament as opposed to the, the Hebrew text. Uh, but, but it's saying that same thing from Isaiah, right? So why does Jesus use parables? Why does he do this same thing? Does he not want people to understand him? And what I would say to that is... None of us really understands what it is to be good and do right on our own. And that's a big point about all of this, is that none of us really get what it is we're supposed to be doing. And our natural tendency, even though we were created for more, is to follow our own way, to do right and wrong based on what we think right and wrong is. And that ends up causing injustice. Remember a few weeks ago we said injustice comes by trying to take God's blessings on your own instead of letting God bless you with them. And so we can't do it, can we? And no matter how wise or smart we think we are, it seems that we continue to make the wrong choices. We need something else, don't we? In the last verse of Isaiah 16, God says that there's going to be a holy seed. 
Who is the holy seed? The holy seed is Jesus. And I don't want to spoil too much. Well, of course, you have your whole Bible, so you can spoil it yourselves. But next week, we're going to be talking a lot about Jesus because the next few chapters are going to lay the foundation for who this ruler is going to be that comes from the stump of Israel, from the stump of David, who's going to sprout up into something that is incredible and beyond what anyone has seen. And what we find is that Jesus, Jesus is the way that we can actually understand justice. Not just learning about Jesus, but by saying yes to following Jesus. By telling Jesus we need forgiveness, we want to repent, and we want to be baptized. By starting a life of faith and then continuing that life of faith beyond just that moment of salvation, but into an ongoing life of salvation as we change parts about ourselves, as we work to dismantle systems of injustice, as we do the good work to bless others in the kingdom. So what we find, and here's our major point, is that healing and forgiveness, healing was the word that it said in Isaiah, forgiveness is the word Jesus said in Mark, only come through accepting God's way. Namely, we learn later, Jesus, the Holy Seed. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're feeling with all this. I, I hope you recognize, if you haven't said yes, that you need a Savior, that you need someone to interpret what's going on for you, and that person is Jesus. Because that's what was different about the apostles, right? The 12 disciples and the people that were hanging out with Jesus versus the rest of the crowd when Jesus told parables, is that they had Jesus to interpret for them what was going on. And the rest of the people hadn't gotten close enough to Jesus to find out what he was really saying. We want to get close to Jesus. We want to draw closer to Jesus. And the closer we draw to Jesus, the more we are going to live towards this reality of the new Jerusalem, of the kingdom that God is preparing for us and that is working through us right now. And we want to be part of that. It's good news. Good, good, good news. So I want to pray over us, and then we will continue a service. So God, thank you so much for the Holy Seed. Thank you so much that even in the midst of our betrayal, with the blood covering our hands, with the way we worship wrong, with the way we do injustice, that we don't pay attention to the people that we need to, God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to help begin to transform us into the likeness of him, of Jesus, and to become more like what you created us to be, that you might bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God, help us to be your people. Help us to follow you. Help us to go and do what is right. Help us to follow Jesus. God, you are so good. Thank you for your words of transformation. Thank you for the words that hit us and help us recognize we need to change. God, thank you for the words of healing that remind us that you are there and you love us and you want us and you want so much more for us than we can imagine for ourselves. God, you are so good. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, contact family. I love you guys. Keep on thinking souls, and I'll see you next week.